So I'm here for another uh, All Access interview. Kai Savas here. I'm sitting down with the awesome Tom Holkenborg. Tom, how are you doing this morning? Thanks for joining me so early. <laughs> I'm, uh, well, I'm up, but it's four. So uh, <laughs> you never went to sleep. You're still awake. I mean, like halfway through this recording, it's beer o'clock. You know? <laughs> I'm an early I'm an early bird too, so this, this is sort of I'm going to jump right into work after this. So, um, so for anyone listening, uh, watching, you know, Tom and I have done a bunch of interviews in the past. So, if you want to learn more about Tom's, uh, you know, path to his career path to becoming a composer, definitely check those out because we're going to jump uh, right into right into things right now. So, um, but before we jump into some projects, I did want to um, talk about uh, just all your all the work you do on social media, which I think is fantastic with studio time and all of that. I mean, you're giving back so much to the community. You're giving back so much uh, insight and, and, and tips and, and all the things that you do. So how did that start? And when did you decide to kind of dedicate a lot of time to that? Because you really do kind of a great production value with everything. Um, well, I think the fact that I'm doing it is normal. The fact that nobody else does it is not normal. You know, um, uh, ancient societies were built on sharing science and knowledge and philosophy um, it, it, and that made these uh, um, these old cultures like really great. And um, I think it's important. So I come from a family where my mom was a music teacher and she, at daytime, she would give music um, education to kids. That was her daytime job. And then at night, she would also give music lessons, but she would give music lessons to kids of less fortunate families without charging them. Uh, so uh, that way, a lot of more kids, because I come from a really rural countryside area in Holland that was not necessarily uh, all that rich in the 60s and 70s. It's a little different now, but back in the day. So there were a lot of kids that would not have, have access you know, to music education. So that's how it started. Um, and then in 2003, four, I was approached by the biggest music university in Holland uh, to help them set up a, a four-year course, very much of the likes of uh, Berkeley School of Music. And the specialty was uh, music and media. That's the name of the study. And um, it's a very wide range from composing to film, video games, but also electronic composition in the, in, you know, in the most broad form. Uh, and sound design, even coding for video games and coding for software, if that's what you wanted to do. And um, we attracted a bunch of really good teachers. And uh, uh, in the beginning, um, uh, we made a good splash. And now uh, we're 15 to 17 years later. And now we have like 120 to 140 students uh, on a yearly basis that come from all over the planet, you know, from wow. China, from Germany, from France, from Scandinavia, from England. Uh, so it's really great. And so uh, the university and I parted ways in 2015 uh, because I wanted to do other things. And, uh, and the study was like rolling really great. So they didn't need me anymore. And so uh, I was thinking, okay, what, what can we do next? And so I was talking to um, my social media manager, Hisham, to my manager and a few other bright thinkers. And that's where the idea for Studio Time was born. And um, the idea of like um, uh, sharing everything that I do with the community uh, in a giving back uh, scenario, because also in Holland, um, education is for free. 
uh, and I think it should be for free or almost for free. And uh, so that's why this is for free. Uh, and um, in the beginning, the first season was actually really hilarious because we threw a bunch of cameras and some lights and then it was like, okay, what shall we do? Okay, let's do this, you know? And because we had no idea uh, what people would think. So we did like 10, 12 episodes in that first season became a big success and then second season two was really well prepared with like 40 episodes uh and then season three and now we're in season four um and it's been uh, it's been a really great channel uh knowing that uh, what the the you know the hate and the negativity can be uh in in the online world it, it's Absolutely, remarkably yeah. it's a remarkably warm uh, channel where people advise each other, where people uh, give us feedback, what they think. Uh, we incorporate that into next episodes, new seasons, and then there's this really broad um, section, Ask Me Anything, which is like my version of the Reddit uh, thing, and uh, where people can ask all kinds of questions. And it varies from, you know, the psychological effects uh, of being a composer to actually really technical nitty gritty things like what drivers for what sound cards and what speakers and, you know. So it, I'm really happy we're able to do this. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I applaud you for the effort because I know it's not uh, just a simple thing to put on. It's a lot of work for sure. Yeah, um, it takes so, a lot of time. It's not yeah. like... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not just throwing on the camera and throwing it up to YouTube. I mean, editing and framing and, and mapping out what you're going to say. It's, 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 it's a course. You're, you're an instructor. So it's a, it is a lot of times. So and I know that the community uh, definitely appreciates it. And I always see the wonderful feedback and everything. Um, but I'd, let's... All right, so let's jump into Justice League. I know you've talked about it a bunch already, but... Um, I want to kind of go back to that. When did you find out that this, that this, that Zach was going to be able to do his version? Did you get that call? And what were you surprised? What were the emotions when you found out this was going to happen? It wasn't like uh, a night and day experience. You know, it, it 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 was brewing for a while, and then at a certain point, uh, the year before last, uh, uh, you know, I had multiple uh, phone calls with Zach for the potential fact that it might happen and he was asking me how much time do you need how much budget do you need how much time recording uh and everything that we planned out at the time obviously didn't mean anything uh at the date that uh, the project officially got greenlit because now we're full on in corona uh so uh recording with the whole orchestra was not possible uh, I had to work in isolation. Zach had to work in isolation. So it's uh, it, it was um, interesting, but then at the same time, a super thrilling year because um, uh, I just wanted to I want to make clear that when a movie comes out in a theater or it comes out on a streaming service, there's like a general understanding that um, I would be potentially just done prior a week to when it comes out in the movie in the movie theaters. Usually, can this can be up to a year, right? So, for instance, Godzilla versus Kong was completely done in 2018 already. Uh, no, uh, 19, the end of 2019, completely done. Uh, Army of the Dead was completely done in March 2019. So, the rest of the year, I was able to work on Justice League primarily, you know, for almost like the full for the full 90 percent, wow. and. Um, <clears throat> 
yeah, I mean, it was incredible when I did get that phone call, which was, I think, the last week of April, when Zach said, okay, it's full steam ahead, let's do it. And um, by that time, I had uh, obviously already listened to what I did in 2016, when we were working on the version then. Um, but the, the cuts that we were working on were so different in 2016, because uh, it, it involved already, like, um, heavy influence by DC and Warner Brothers at the time what the movie needed to be and I'm not going to get into details in in this particular interview Zach has said okay. enough about it in the interviews that he said but uh, it was it was a stressful time period and um, and then this uh, dramatic thing happened in his uh, family which was pretty much like uh, the axe uh, for this project for him you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and automatically for me because when a new director comes in uh he wants to clean ship and just work with his own crew and i totally understand that there was never harsh feelings against uh josh that um that he wanted to bring in Danny elfman that is like I, I probably would do the same <laughs> you know just like if right, i were right. a director. so um Nevertheless, so now the movie is going to happen, and I li I listened back to the music that I did back then, and uh, a it kind of brought me back to that that time period of stress and and yeah, hurt yeah. and pain. Uh, and on the other hand, I thought, well, you know, probably this was the best I could do in 2016. But now we're four and a half years later, and I've grown so much as a composer. I worked with Peter Jackson and James Cameron and with Robert Rodriguez and with uh, uh, Tim Miller and with uh, so many other George Miller, great directors. And I was like, I learned so much. It would be stupid not, not to use that knowledge into delivering the best score for this movie so i called zach and i said would you mind if i start over and he said no by all means if you feel that's best for the movie go for it and uh so and then i am um, technically my mount everest began you know yeah, i mean so speaking of mount everest i mean how do you tackle uh when did you start working on it did, did zach were you kind of he was giving you in sections and you would start scoring it or did you wait till there was like a an assembly cut or a lock picture before you started mapping out and structuring because for a four hour plus movie I mean, I think just structurally, how did that even, how did your brain work to kind of start mapping that out? Well, the movie was already done. Uh, so they, they, and I'm not talking about the 2016 cut, which was a little under two hours, but there was a cut now that was four hours and 20 minutes. And so I got it the day after uh, the movie was greenlit and uh, I saw the whole thing, I think like 10 times over a period of two, three weeks. Um, and really strategize like how to attack this and you know a movie like this i actually i never understood with any film composer by the way uh that they would see a movie once and sit behind the piano and immediately start writing all kinds of things like i never got that um because i um i want to let it sink in and i want to make like a, a plan for myself it's like okay how many themes do i need and how many moments in the movie that theme needs to be featured and 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 how do we do this and how do we do that do i need unique instruments that i create from scratch or that i find online uh for this score uh what um what type of orchestrations do i want or what type of sound design do i want and how much of that do i need to prepare before i start writing and um 
So we, we have passed the day now that a director swings by and you sit behind the piano and you kind of roughly play in the piano what you're going to be doing, right? I mean, you have to present right, yeah. <laughs> the, the full thing. And since I'm not 100% orchestral writer, and especially in this case, Justice League, it's such a melting pot of all these different uh, cultural influences and, and different modern styles infused with classical writing. And so there was a lot of lab work that needed to be done, you know? Um, so first there was like a month of lab work to really create the sound. And then I got really into writing all the themes like one by one. Uh, and so now we're talking half June, uh, third week of June, and then I presented all the themes and the production and the sound of the movie to Zach. He was thrilled and he was happy as a kid. Uh, and then um, halfway June or so, that's when I started attacking the most important scenes first in Justice League, then the second most important scenes, and then the third. And so now the movie was covered for 60%. And then we started looking at, okay, what are all the gaps and what shall we do for those gaps? Like something unique or a reiteration of a theme or something light, something like uh, completely left field out of the box, you know? So it's a really like um, multiple step program. I always compare to people, it's like, it's, it's designing like a new, I don't know, like if you will, an Empire State Building, you're not gonna, you're not going to work on the toilet on the 87th floor first, you know, first you're going right. to, you, first you're going to make drawings and then you get it approved yeah. by the city council. And then you start talking to contractors and first you start with the foundation and then the massive rough steelwork. And as you progress, the detailing becomes important and more detailing. And then you start worrying about the carpet in the lobby. You know, you, 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 you're not thinking about that before there's even a drawing of the building itself. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, how did you tackle this? It's an, it's an ensemble cast. And, you know, when you think of a superhero film, you know, you think of the single theme and the superhero is the one protagonist. And, uh, and I mean, you could argue who the protagonist is of Justice League. There's a lot of focus on Ray Fisher's character, Cyborg, which we finally got to see. But of course, Wonder Woman has an amazing arc. And I mean, everybody has an amazing arc. So how did you decide when, you know, you and Hans, of course, worked on the, the, the previous films with Zach. How did you decide what thematic material to bring into this one and what new stuff needed to be done as well? Pretty much everything was going to be new, um, except for two things. And that is um, Wonder Woman and uh, Superman, because um, Superman, if you will, is a more two dimensional char character. It's it's a guy who always wants to be good, and he's he's always like a good guy, and uh, at least in the film so far, and he's noble and he's warm uh, and he's loyal. Uh, so um, it made sense that the theme of Man of Steel trickled over in Batman versus Superman without actually really being changed and trickling over into Justice League without actually really being changed because the character is not really changing, right? That's true, yeah, it's true. Um, and then if you, if you uh, count out the fact that there's a, a separate Wonder Woman film or actually two <clears throat> where two different composers took their own swing on it, um, what, what to do with the theme, 
um, what my Wonder Woman theme is doing is basically continuing the course that was set out in Batman versus Superman. And uh, the, the, the more rougher uh, sword and sandal type of uh, approach, because that was what Zack was really looking for. Zack never wanted um, a, a romantic version of that theme or a female, if you will, between brackets version of that theme. He said, okay, she's a woman, but she's mo most likely the most powerful of all and the most brutal in, in, the, in, the, in the fight sequences together with Aquaman. And so, um, uh, because it's really physical contact, the rest is like shooting and have like these unique powers to do things to other people. But uh, Wonder Woman and uh, Aquaman are actually driving swords and spears into people's bodies, you know? So yeah, and they're the ones that really take Steppenwolf down. I mean, spoiler alert, yeah. but you know, at the end, I mean, that's the most brutal part of it, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so I think, uh, that, so that's the reason why uh, I chose a different course for Wonder Woman than has been portrayed in the two solo movies uh, and per direction of Zack and, and my own taste. But I did feel that um, the Amazon uh, clan was so important in this particular movie that I really wanted to give it not like really orchestral colors, but more like a clan tribe colors, you know, and that's where all these like... Uh, um, a strange world type of sounds come from, from the Duke and, and Persian singers, but also percussion from Africa. And uh, it, it's like a conglomerate, a conglomerate of like world music elements being combined for the, for the, for the Wonder Woman uh, part and the Amazon part. And um, yeah, you feel you the history, it, like there's a, there's like a, it feels like an older history behind the music there, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like the, the music for Wonder Woman should always feel like it was always here and it will always be, you know, and that's the quality of world music. If you listen to uh, traditional uh, Persian music or Greek music or traditional African music, you just hear it's been here for thousands of years and you know it's going to be here for thousands of years in the future, you know, it's not going to go away. And uh, so uh, the same with Indian uh, traditional music. So um, let's move on to Batman. So everything for Batman is completely new. And people said, why? And I said, well, uh, let's stick to these same uh, characterizations of what I just said about Man of Steel. It's like Batman goes through quite an incarnation from the Batman versus Superman into Justice League. Batman versus Superman he was like an older alcoholic guy and he completely lost his shape and he was completely troubled by the past uh, of the trauma with his parents that the Joker killed them. And um, very different though in this movie, this movie when we see him for the first time, he's on a mission. We're, you know, we're done with that stuff, you know? It's like, let's kick some ass and let's get this Justice League team together, together with Diane. Uh, to fight uh, Steppenwolf and Darkseid. So it was warranted that the music for Batman would be new and, uh, and it made the most sense. Uh, and then everything else is new, obviously, with no uh, track records of it. Uh, the, the, the Flash has his own theme that by, completely took me by surprise how that has been taking off on social media as being the favorite theme of the Yeah, movie. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Which is really great, obviously. Um, uh, there's the Justice League theme for the whole crew. Obviously, that is completely new. 
and then there's uh, Cyborg. And I think, uh, and, and a little bit of Aquaman, but Aquaman obviously has two major features in the movie, but they have been taken care of by songs. Uh, and then there's the introduction of Barry um, at the doggy, the doggy daycare, and yes. that has also been taken care of by a song. So, uh, it, 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 so you always have to be a little bit more, um, uh, yeah, just like experimental in thinking and adventurous. It's like if the two major entrances of both those characters are being taken care of by a licensed song, it's like, what do you do after that? Because clearly you cannot set up a theme and clearly you cannot do the big ta-da kind of thing, you know? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, but, yeah uh, absolutely. But it worked out. Oh, it did. I mean, it, I just, I was so impressed at how it all flowed and, and everything just moved. And I mean, it was just to tackle something of that length is just incredible. So congratulations for finally being able to realize it. It must be, it must feel amazing to, to have that out in the world and have people responding yeah, to it. Yeah, it feels really good. And it's like, um, um, uh, it's really good. And, and uh, you know, the, the warm uh, feedback that I've gotten, uh, not only from fans, so many of them, but also from uh, colleague composers here in town, you know, that have sent me compliments. And uh, so it's really great. Yeah, it's yeah great. absolutely. So let's uh, jump into, of course, now you're working with Zach again, although you've worked with Zach again, now it's a little bit date, but now it's coming out, Army of the Dead, coming to Netflix. Um, so what were the first conversations you had about music uh, here? Because this is a I'm, I'm trying to recall, is this your kind of first, I know it's more like action, but is, is this your kind of first foray into horror, into that horror genre? Or have you done, I'm trying to think, have you done horror in the past? Yeah, I've done. Uh, yeah. And, um, but it's, this is not your typical yeah. horror film. So not it, typical. <laughs> so uh, it, the, the potential, um, you know, uh, Christopher Young playbook, who has done so many amazing horror scores, right? And, yes, and, yes. Uh, it, it, it doesn't work here in this movie. So, it, <laughs> so, so what, what were so what what needed what did this mo uh, movie need musically? What were those first conversations, and how did you uh, approach it? Oh well, actually, there are two storylines without any spoilers at this point. But um, there are two storylines here that coincide that have nothing to do with this whole horror event that's going on, and and so. And those were the two most important ones. And so, and they need actually a very emotional approach uh, instead of horror music. And um, and then um, Zach and I both agreed that we didn't want to go for an orchestral score in the typical sounds that we would know from these type of movies. Uh, so it, it was a, a great experiment and it's very heavy relying on sound design and solo female vocals and um, uniquely, processed pianos and percussion coming from breaking trees and and uh, and uh, really awkward choir sounds and so it, it's it's a it's a great mix of stuff this movie must have been so fun though because this is like kind of like a, a playground this is like the, the kind of thing you hope for where it's just like we're trying to have fun we're trying to be exciting we're trying to also add, you know give an emotional attachment for the audience so you mentioned breaking trees were there any other cool samples that you're working with or any unique instrumentation that you wanted to kind of bring in to really kind of um, kind of flesh out the sound of it well i mean like uh, the, the so the breaking trees is one but then the uh, I created like piano sounds from sounds that are not piano to begin with, uh, and it, it, that worked really great. Um, and I always have, I always go back to like 
to any of the libraries of like weird sounds that I've made over the last 30 years or so. And there's always one that is like perfect for a movie, you know? Um, and then you go through 20 other ones. It's like, oh man, this sounds great, but not for this movie. Maybe next, the next one, you know? Um, yeah, so I mean, it, it takes really place. Great. Yeah, it takes place in Vegas, which is a, a you know, such an iconic setting where you, when you think of Vegas, you think of, of course, the, the strip, but also the desert and the kind of the, the color palette. How much does the location, I mean, specifically also to, for this movie, but just also in general, how much does the setting, the color palette kind of affect you? Like when you're looking at colors and, and everything, the costumes affect your color palette. I mean, your sound palette, I guess it would be the more appropriate thing to say. Yeah, I don't want to say too much about this because, um, uh, because I don't want to give anything away um, how Vegas looks when we get there. So okay, <laughs> yeah, no spoilers, no spoilers. Yeah, let's leave it at that. Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, so we uh, we talked, uh, kind of touching back. So we have some great characters, of course, in Army of the Dead. We also talked about some of the great characters in uh, Justice League, and uh, I do want to point out Ray Fisher's amazing performance of Cyborg, and of course, you have some great uh, performances here. How how much does a, an actor's performance really kind of push? The emotional side of what you're writing for do you really hone in on their kind of just the nuances of what they're doing and try to capture that musically how does the performance affect you as the writer of the music of course i mean like um so the the, the thing is that the music that you're writing it, it, and this is for actually every movie uh, is that whether it's action music or it's emotional music or it's uh, ranging music or it's like you're scoring jealousy or you're scoring uh, shame or you despair wh whatever it is sadness you have to make sure that you that you stay with your music intensity and complexity at least 10 to 25 percent underneath what the actor is doing on screen if the actor is not doing anything you have potentially more musical uh, tools uh, to score a certain right. scene. But if the actor, for instance, has like a piercing look in his eye and the, and, the, and the camera just stays on him and that look is so powerful the way that he acts, you want to be careful what you do with music at that point because you might just completely overscore the film and it has an opposite effect. So usually what the, the language that is being used in films is that you want people to lean in. And if you do too much as a composer, people lean back. And, and that's not what you want. You want people to lean in to the movie, invest in a character, invest in the story. And um, the amount of sound effects, the level at which certain things are mixed, whatever the composer is writing, busy, not busy, what register, what type of instruments, can create the opposite effect of what actually is needed for the scene. So in short, the answer to your question is yes. Whatever the actor is doing on screen is essential to what you then do with the music after. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I've never thought of it that way in terms of like making, yeah, not overstep. Yeah, you can totally overstep and ruin a performance. And I think a lot of people forget how much a performance can be shaped in post-production. And sometimes actors will see a movie and go, oh, wow, that's amazing how it turned out because it's not like a stage play where they kind of see it Unfold, yeah, well, you know? I mean, there, 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 are, um, there are so many um, amazing YouTube videos online of uh, YouTubers that show the impact of music. If you take like one certain scene from a movie 
and then they play like three, four, five, six different types of scores. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are great. I'm sure some some of the film fans here on your show have done that before, and that's when you truly see the power. Like, unfortunately, in studio time, I am never allowed to use footage of the films that I work on. It's right for like, copyright hey, issues. Yeah, I would love to show this to people. But I do this, uh, I did this in class when I was still running that university. I would bring a scene that I was working on and then we would play like 10 random different pieces of music underneath. And it just, sometimes the atmosphere would completely change. I mean, like, and I would pick really drastic, drastic pieces of music. Like you would have an emotional scene and then the music would be uh, <laughs> Persian traditional music. And then the other would be a really bad, softcore French like uh, lounge song you know what I mean and then another yeah, absolutely. Song would, would, would be like a, uh, a solo Yiddish uh, violin uh, another piece of music would be a singer-songwriter song really earnestly performed and that same scene gets a completely different meaning with all these different um, pieces of music it's great you can go from straight up comedy to like really emotional, you know, with the same picture. Yeah, the, 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 my favorite are the ones where they take a, they made it like a, they turn The Shining into a, a, like a romantic comedy, you know, they re-edit yeah. with, yeah, they re-edit the trailer with some different music and it completely is uh, completely different. Um, I do want to, uh, yet another amazing big film that came out recently, uh, of course, uh, Kong versus Godzilla. And, uh, you know, th that's another, you know, almost like a playground where you get to just, create music that, you know, and especially with, uh, we're talking about kind of working with the palette and what's on screen. You have these two giant monsters, uh, iconic monsters, of course, but just when you're scoring those fights and you have to kind of create momentum, you know, make people feel like these monsters are huge and every motion is, how did you approach that musically and how did you try to give them a little bit separation to kind of identify both of them musically throughout the film? Well, I started with, um without starting on the film itself, uh, because I started writing the themes for the movie before they were shooting the film. Oh, uh, wow, that's great, yeah. I love hearing so that. The director was uh, playing some of the music that I played on the set really loud on the speakers. To oh, that's awesome, people. I love hearing that. I love, and people need to do that more. <laughs> yeah, to get people amped up, so that was great. Um, but I started with uh, Godzilla and I wanted like I wanted to write a theme that was original, but it breathes like 60 years of Godzilla history, you know, that had to shine through that theme. And, uh, and many people picked up on that. And, and, that, and that, is, that is great. And for Kong, I wanted to score a theme that was deeply rooted in um, the rich history of Hollywood and uh, monster movies, because Godzilla was never a Hollywood character, right? It was yeah, always absolutely. Uh, so it always had its own funky approach, uh, not only how it looked, but also the, the soundtrack. I mean, it's kind of hilarious that the original theme from um, uh, the, the sort of action music of Godzilla was like and it's it's actually it's comedic you know it's it's to me it doesn't feel like whoa Godzilla you know I start laughing when I hear that and back in the day it was like such a perfect match with like the tongue-in-cheek version of Godzilla you know 
and, and I've been a fan of these Godzilla movies uh, for so long. I have all 36 movies. Uh, I know them inside out. And uh, my favorite one is uh, uh, Godzilla versus Biolanti when he's fighting like a massive rose or something. It, it, it's too much <laughs> for words. Uh, but, um, but anyway, uh, so um, Kong is a more... A way more serious character and way closer to a human being, if not, uh, you know, a human being. And um, Kong never had the, the the development of Godzilla because Godzilla w went everywhere and nowhere, right? In his character, then he was the enemy of Tokyo. Then he was the big friend, and then he was this, and then he was that. Whereas the the three major King Kong movies that were made. Uh, we're technically the three, the same story again, you know, um, the, the original Max Steiner scored one and then the one in 76, 77. Uh, yeah, John Barry, I think, did that one, yeah. Yeah, and then, the, and then the Peter Jackson one with like an yeah. insanely beautiful score by uh, John, James Noon Howard. And um, so... Um, uh, and, and so they started taking some risk with Kong when um, uh, Skull Island was released like a couple of years ago, where it was, you know, uh, Kong in a different setting, you know, just like yeah. a, a, a different world, but recognizable. So that's the first time they actually did that. Um, whereas in this movie, uh, it, it feels a little bit more like the traditional Kong, but a new a new story about him, you know, fi finding the home where he came from. So yeah, that's- The whole Hollow, Hollow Earth thing was really cra crazy and cool, yeah. that good, scoring that his journey back home and everything, yeah. yeah. And so, um, um, so by having these two very dis distinctive themes, it's easy in an action sequence that, that when Godzilla has the upper hands, you just bam, you just drop the theme for Godzilla and then the same for, for Kong and then there's like some mashups. But what's important with these massive battle scenes is that you really have a good conversation with the director and the sound design team, like who gets priority and where is that going to happen? Because, you know, when these two animals roar at each other, like it, it, during the fight in, um, uh, in Hong Kong, there's like sections of three to five minutes where I said, I don't think I should be doing much here because of the insane sounds. And then we settled on some propulsive bass lines and a, a little bit of percussion. And then there would be a moment where it's like, boof, you know, the themes come in really, really big. And that's when the sound design is like quite mixed significantly lower. So that the music takes over there and then it goes back into sound design. You know what I mean? So it's constantly like- yeah. Yeah. If it's big. I mean, I was actually going to ask you about that because um, from just across from Justice League to Army of the Dead to, to Kong, and this is, you know, not new territory for you. You've scored so many action heavy films. And I think for, I've talked to a lot of filmmakers about that, uh, or I mean, sorry, composers about scoring those because you really do have to pay attention to the sound design and, and so you're, music doesn't get lost, but also that your music is actually adding something to the mix. And uh, do you normally get that uh, opportunity or have you had situations where you see the final product and everything is just mixed kind of a mess and you go, oh no, everything is kind of lost. <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with like, um, with dialogue that the composer has with the sound design team. The sound design team is always 
ready to receive a composer with open arms, but there's not a lot of willingness um, among some composers to even consider uh, the sound design team as a partner in what they're doing. You know, it, it feels more like they're, both the teams are fighting each other sometimes, you know, whereas the composer wants his music louder and the sound design team doesn't want to pull the sound design down, which is basically, um, it's a, it, you can consider it a bad composition. If, if like an, an, a composer writes like a main melody in the lower cello, but has a second melody in the higher basis and they constantly clash with, with each other, you've, you've you composed a bad piece of music. So, right. and, and so if you zoom out and you take a, a, an eagle's uh, bird eye view uh, on the total mix, dialogue, sound effects, foley and music need to fit like a glove in each other. So when there are certain types of dialogue don't score certain types of music. If sound effects are really heavy, like in 300, uh, 300 Rise of an Empire, there's a lot of swords clanging and all that stuff. Of course, you're not gonna write a piece of music for metal drums and chains and, and all that stuff because that's right. the same frequency range. So, um, so I, I think the collaboration is really important, especially when you write music like I do, because I do so much music sound design. So you need to be in sync with the sound design people. If you're John Williams type composer only using the orchestra, there is potentially less clashing between what he is writing and the sound design team, because it's such a different character in sound and it doesn't clash as easy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a balanced uh, kind of dance that you have to have. And I think, yeah, collaboration, I think communication is the key. I, yep. I think more people need to communicate and if you, everyone's working kind of siloed in their little pods. And then when it comes time to push everything together, there's gonna be problems for sure. <laughs> um, so just to, to kind of wrap things up as we close down, I, I wanna just talk to, just looking at your career at this point, you mentioned uh, how you threw everything out from the original Justice League because you've grown as a composer. You've had the most, I think, for me, the most interesting musical career starting out in Europe and the career you had and moving to Hollywood and starting your composing career. Where do you see yourself at this point in your life? Uh, do you have like goals, like creative goals that you want to achieve? Are you still looking for, you know, you're trying to learn more about a certain subject? Do you want to score certain genres a little bit more? Like, do you kind of think about these things and, or are you just kind of along for the ride and you're just happy with, you know, working with the, your friends and your collaborators? And so I'm just kind of curious just how you see your career. <laughs> No, I'm I'm I, I'm not the latter uh, type person. I actually am, but the the, the point is that um, um, my brain is like such it's so filled with curiosity that I I, I always want to learn new things. Like I'm I'm studying language number five right now, Portuguese. I want to be able to speak Portuguese fluently. Uh, besides that, I'm already speaking Dutch, English, French, and uh, German. And so um, I, I want to control that. Then uh, I am a really good chef, but I want to be an even better chef. Uh, I got an incredible coffee machine because I have such love for coffee and I want to be an incredible barista. So I'm practicing, I'm practicing. I know how to dial in my espresso machine and, and my coffee and um, 
right now I'm actually building a bunch of electronic things because that's technically how my career ever started as an electro engineer. So right, yeah. uh, in my 12, 13, 14 years old. So I'm actually building guitar stuff and guitar pedals right now in the night hours. And then in the daytime, I write music. I constantly study music. On Sundays, I study uh, classical symphonies that uh, that I never got to studying when I was younger. Um, I read lots of interviews with um, people or books that analyze like a certain composer's life. And I'm not talking about film composing. I'm talking about you know uh, original composers. Then I have this insane interest in all the modern music styles out there like uh, electronic music alternative guitar sound design music uh new classical composition i mean the, I, I think like i was talking the other day i'm gonna invent the 48 hour day uh <laughs> there's a need for it so i have You've always yeah I, have, I don't have enough time then i'm a cycling fanatic so i'm following the giro d'italia right now um, um, um i love watching really great movies and great tv shows i also try to keep up with like great things that are coming out on netflix hulu apple amazon you name it uh so it's like man i come uh hours to short the next thing i want to tackle is uh uh, choreography, you know, just like really oh, wow. like yeah. classic uh, 16th century writing, 17th century. Uh, wow. I got papers, I got the pens, I got the ink. I, and so it's like, there's so many things that I love, man. It's like, and, and, and I want to get good at it. It's, it's a, a hunger that is not, it doesn't get stilled, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and I, I see that. I mean, I hear that in your music because every score I hear, it feels like new ideas are coming in and I love how you kind of, it seemed, yeah, you seem like you're just a sponge trying to absorb as much as you, you can. And you've always been this kind of tinkering, uh, you know, gearhead as well and loving to experiment with sounds. And that's what I've always appreciated about your music, but that's good to hear that you are, you know, in other areas as well and taking all these different hobbies and interests. I think that enriches your yourself and that makes you a better storyteller. And I think uh, I've, I've enjoyed watching your music grow over the years. So it's been such a pleasure for me as a listener. And uh, oh, it's so great to hear. And it's like, it, it, it's, you know, what's really great uh, and um, amazing about my profession, and it always has been, is that with whatever I do, um, uh, there's always like a few people somewhere in the world uh, that get emotional listening to something that you do, uh, that, that have to smile because of something that you do or they talk with one or two friends about it. And even the fact that you do something on a yearly basis that touches like a few people around the planet that say, oh, that is my song. You know, that is so amazing that you, you know, that you do something that makes people happy. And, and the cool thing I like about uh, film composition compared to what I was before an artist, I would always, you know, I, I've done shows, uh, for instance, the Love, uh, the, no, the, the, uh, the Gay Parade in Italy. Um, it was like a million people there, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. I played. And so it, it, it was insane. I played for so many big crowds. Uh, I played Coachella twice here in, uh, in California. And so um, that was great. But then I was like right in the forefront, you know, just like 40 plus, right? 
And now I'm working more behind the scenes. Like sometimes I see movies that I worked on pre-corona and I would go to the theater and I would see Deadpool and the whole place is packed and everybody's laughing and screaming and, but nobody knows I did the music and it's so great. You know, you, you get like a real experience what people feel, you know, uh, when they see something and you can't, there's not a moment you go home with like a bigger smile than that, that people were happy to see something you worked on. And that is like an incredible job to have. It doesn't get better. Yeah, I think just being able because you work so closed off in your room and you're kind of isolated from most of what you do, but then to see how it goes out in the world and affects people, yeah, I think that's the, that's the yeah. that's the beautiful part about I think just filmmaking in general and storytelling. It just it connects yeah. people and it connects the human condition, and that's why I fell in love with it. So um, yeah. you can't you can't just like uh, in any form of art, uh, just lock yourself up like. Uh, uh, how do you call somebody that lives in the like a recluse exactly like a recluse and 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 just like make your music and and never go out in in the real life to experience how people are are, are experiencing it and it's like uh it's incredible sometimes that you create something and you feel oh this is very emotional to me and then you play it to 10 people and you said okay i like it but doesn't it doesn't hit me, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and so clearly you you can still go to battle with these 10 people that this is the most emotional music that you wrote, but clearly those people don't think it's emotional. You know, it's like, so you're doing something wrong. And so, and it's the same as scary music, you know, which is like, oh, this is so scary. And then somebody says, no, it's not. It's okay, but it's not scary, you know. And then, uh, so those are the things you really experience when you go out into the world and experience a movie with a test audience or with a focus group or with. Uh, eventually, when it come it comes out, um, sometimes you work on a scene. For instance, that the the, uh, the the relief that people felt in the theater when the first action sequence was over in Mad Max, you know, when everything ends in that massive oh, yes. storm and Max wakes up in the morning with that, those little sands things yes. all of his head. But I, we, I mean, we saw the movie and it's like, oh man, what a great new sequence. Okay, let's go. And then I saw that thing in the theater and people, when the first action was over, was like, ah, oh, God damn it, come on, yeah, you know? Like that, it was, it was insane. I mean, there was such, and, and then for instance, the jokes in Deadpool, I, th I thought they were funny, but when I was in the theater, like pe people were crying of laughing, you know, it's just. Uh... It's such a connection thing. And I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I work in animation, so it's a similar feeling when you see something you're working on go out. But Tom, I know you, uh, you're busy, you have a busy schedule ahead of you. And I just wanted to Thank you for chatting this morning. It's so great to catch up. And it's been a while since we talked. So uh, thank you for your time and, and for sharing some of your, your insight. Well, I'm sure our paths will cross again.